0: for Welcome to the Space Cave, a big warg to all of you space burgers out there. I'm David Huntsberger, and I hope you are doing well. A few items before we start. One, you can watch One-Headed Beast streaming on Amazon Prime. I don't know for how much longer that's going to go. They kind of put things on Prime and then take them away every so often. Uh, so if you want to see that, you can also see it on the Roku channel. It's a stand-up special we made a few years ago, but the joke's... Don't really have anything to do with anything too topical, so it should still seem relatively new if you haven't seen it, and you can also listen to stand-up of mine anywhere you can get it, iTunes and Pandora and Spotify and wherever else, Um, but you're here for podcasting. And a previous podcast I did called Professor Blastoff, every now and again people email me about uh, shirts and things like that, I'm going to do For the Holidays uh, some cool beer t-shirts so if you want one of those go to david com, and if you don't see the link up yet uh, there's just like a secret poster thing you can click on there should be the the shirt link up by monday or whenever you're getting this uh, but there'll be a limited amount so get yours while you can get them to a friend if you'd like someone who still loves that show or Maybe their shirt wore out. I don't know. But I get emailed from time to time, so I thought this would be a good thing for the holidays if you have someone in your life that would like one. And you heard it here first. I'll probably start posting about it later in the week, so if you listen to The Space Cave, when it comes out, you get the first jump on it before anyone else knows about that deal anyway. And thanks for supporting the show. This show is made possible by contributions from listeners just like you. If you are a a patron on the patreon page get access to behind the scenes stuff and an extra episode here and there and things like that and more than anything else it just really helps the show it helps with uh, music and beer and upkeep and costs and uh hosting and all the fees that go along with doing a podcast and uh dan and i really appreciate it uh okay i think that's it let's uh get into some chatting as i mentioned before the views of my guest are his and his alone. They do not represent where he works or who he works for. They are strictly his. Just, I don't think that disclaimer is necessary. We don't really get into anything too particularly uh, controversial, but even still, um, just goes without saying. So, I hope you liked part one. Here's part two with Casey Handmer, a physicist from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Enjoy as we were on our little break you then gently touched on musical theater it yeah. just feels like you've done a million little things that all have amalgamated into this person who i see and have only gotten to know at a science dinner it's like oh this physicist guy who's fat we sat down and i think i started talking about radiation which one of your recent blog posts yes. is about yes. <laughs> not
1: being afraid of it so but i think that conversation kind of got me thinking and and um i read all the news articles out there, say so Jeff Faust and, and uh, Eric Berger and Lauren Grash and a whole bunch of other people, like really top journalists writing all this cool stuff about space. But then, you know, there's also the commentary at that kind of comes along in the Twitter, the Twitter people and, and the bloggers and so on. And um, there's these kind of perceptions about space stuff. And there are people out there who are very effective and, and articulate advocates for space exploration. And you know, Elon's Twitter feed comes to mind. Robert Zubrin's another person comes to mind. Um, Carl Sagan, probably originally. And... Um, uh, but but still like they're kind of like you'd end up in these arguments day after day after day on Twitter with people and you'd be trying to prove to them that they were wrong with 140 characters or 280 characters and you just feel like you're saying the same damn arguments badly over and over again <laughs> and I was like what I need and I had this blog and I kind of hadn't written on it for a while what I'm going to do is I'm going to write like just you know a summary level explanation of what I'm going on about with links to things and things and, you know, any particular topic where I have an opinion, Mm -hmm. you know, like, and I'm not even saying my opinion is right. I'm just saying I have an opinion and I'm a physicist so I think it's right. And and then if I get into one of these arguments, I can just be like, hey, I wrote a blog about this. Check it out. Let me know what you think. Mm -hmm. And if they come back and they say, that's an interesting blog, but did you know that your know, particular reference blah 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 is wrong? I'd be like, "Oh, cool! I'll go back and fix the blog, and then I now I know more than I did before." <laughs> instead of being like,
0: "You're an idiot, and you're an idiot." Yeah,
1: you know? that's going so, that
0: so often in stand-up comedy. People yeah. start telling a story, telling a joke, talking about a person, and then someone goes, "The name's pronounced this way." And then you, <laughs> you don't see that person in the moment. I mean, they'll go, "Oh, really?" But then the thank next you for show, improving my joke. Yeah, the, you ne- know? the next time they do that joke, wow, this person seems really bright. They know that name and how to pronounce it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the, that's the trick. I mean, and And essentially, like, I thought, well, you know, I can either take a blog and, like, every week I'll I'll pull an article from the internet that annoyed me and I'll do a a withering takedown and, you know, six people will read it. And, (laughs) and, um, you know, and and what have I really done except contribute to the hate and the noise? Mm -hmm. Nothing, right? Right. Then I say, well, actually, I'm sure the people who are writing this stuff want just as much as anyone else to be right. You know, they want to be portraying accurate information. Obviously... They don't have the luxury of spending five years in the Caltech Graduate School of Physics, like learning how to find out the answers to these problems or how to ask questions or or how to structure just the question, you know. Maybe I, can, maybe I can maybe I can some contribute something here. I'm some guy
0: and I work in an auto repair shop and damn it, I'm good with my hands and I can solve problems yeah, and that's I can good. get your carburetor running. And therefore I, c- I'm smart, but just, we need people like that trust as well. Me, I'm smart. And I know more than you about this thing. Yeah. You went to Caltech, but I just, I've examined it the same way I would a carburetor. And I'm also right. No, that's, fine, that's fine. That's fine.
1: Well, I say well, what I would try and do is I try and write in a way, and I'm not always very good at this, but I try and write in a way where I'm, I'm assuming good faith on the parts of participants and I'm, I'm highlighting existing misconceptions Mm -hmm. um, or what I perceive as misconceptions and making a, structured cogent respectful well-sourced argument about these particular things and and hoping that it contributes to the discourse instead of just adding to the noise right it's all Mm -hmm. about improving the signal to noise yeah and i feel like if if all the people involved in this can figure out the best way to kind of slot all their respective skills and expertise together we can solve a big problem together right Mm -hmm. and and when it comes to industrializing space which we're going to get onto sooner or later we need the person who works at the at the car repair shop who can repair a uh, carburetor because they know the 20 most common ways that machinery fails. And when we build stuff that has to go to space, we don't want it to fail, right? right. I mean, ideally, we could have an entire, like, rocket ship full of carburetor repair specialists to be able to keep things working. Mm-hmm. But even better than that would be stuff that never breaks down ever. And they'll yeah. know how to do that, right? They'll know, hey, if you could design it, design it that way, I'll be in business for the rest of my life. I mean, like, thank you, I'll fix that. You know? <laughs> and that's, that's a sort of uh, contribution that... I'm really hoping that, you know, we can kind of get together. Um, and, and for people, you know, who are working at SpaceX, I think what it's, what's needed to be done is fairly straightforward. Essentially, just do a deal and tells you and build the rocket better and faster. Uh, people who are outside SpaceX who have a strong interest in seeing um, some of the projects SpaceX is working on succeed, like cheaper launch and really cool internet satellites and, and, uh, and cities on Mars, and that's something that I get excited about. I know not everyone is excited by it, but I get excited about it. Um, the question is, well, how, do I, how can I contribute to that without You know, in in the most useful way, you know, with what limited free time and and ability and and stuff I have. And and I think, you know, part of that for me is is contributing to discourse and helping to educate and communicate science. And the other part of that is a separate project, which I've been working on uh, often on for a couple of years, which is um, really talking about why it is that everyone like finds space exciting right like space when when people come to jpl they, they sometimes ask well how do you decide what missions to do and you're like well we have a decadal survey process where all the scientists get together and with all the other people and they decide what they want to do and they put it all together and then every 10 years they revise it and then we have this huge document we can hand it to lawmakers and we can hand it to funding agencies and basically all have consensus on what we want to do mm-hmm. right and that's great that's how the sausage gets made but space <laughs> <laughs> because space yeah. um and and one of the things that that really fascinates me about Mars as a planet is that it's a planet, you know, it's somewhat small than earth, but it's enormous. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I can't remember. I think the circumference is like 12,000 kilometers. or something. it's, it's a big place and, um, it's, it's surface area is roughly equivalent to the land surface area of the earth. So again, you could spend an entire lifetime there and not see all of it. Mm-hmm. If you were, you know, flying over it at a kilometer per second or something <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, you just, it's like, it's like running through the, the Louvre or something. You just can't see it all in a lifetime. A sigh. Um, so the question, you know, for me, I, I've read a couple of books, uh, some of Rob Zubrin's earlier books and also uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy really inspired me. And, and one of the, the key plot points of the Mars trilogy is that the people get together and they invent this drug that makes them live forever. And, and then because they can think over longer time scales, they're like, well, wouldn't it be cool if we terraform this place? Let's get on with it. You know, we'll still be alive in five, four or 500 years. Um, and they, they do it. And because it's a book, it just kind of works. Um <laughs> And, and that book, which even though it was written about, uh, published about 20 years ago, is actually still like almost spot on in terms of all the science that is in it, um, despite the fact that what we know about Mars is literally thousands and thousands of times more than what we knew back then. Stan, Stan <laughs> made some, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson made some extremely lucky guesses. Um, but uh, but in this in this book they they create a second Earth uh, or or a first Mars that a living breathing Mars where you can walk around and there's water and there's waterfalls and there's rainbows and it's beautiful it's like Hawaii you know mm-hmm. and um, the the island in Hawaii and and uh, I was thinking. When I read that in my brain, I know what it looks like and I see it, and it's a compelling vision. But how do I share that with people? And I thought, well, we have Google Earth and we have Google Mars. You can plot Mars and Google Earth and zoom in and look at all the rocks and things. And if you're into rocks like I am, a geologist, you're like, that's a good enough reason, let's go. <laughs> but if you're just a regular person who's like, actually, when I go to the beach, I spend most of the time looking at the ocean instead of looking at the rock over here, <laughs> um, then, then maybe you need a way, like maybe there's a way that I can modify what you see on Google Earth so it looks more like what Mars would look like if it was terraformed. And so I basically spent Six weeks on an AWS instance, uh, rendering what I think a terraformed Mars would look like. Oh, really? Uh, well, the rendering wasn't quite that long, but the the simulation was, and and that process I'm still refining, and I'm hoping in a couple of years I'll be able to release a version which has um, good enough resolution you can kind of zoom right into like trees and things. Um, <laughs> right now it's about 200 meter resolution, which is still I'm proud of it. Damn it! But uh, <laughs>
0: do you but think it's my, weird how I mean it's going to
1: be? It'll look like like photorealistic like landscape that is the Mars rocks and stuff you know just with plants on top
0: you gotta be you gotta be careful with that because you get people like the flat earth group who then say well hey that that every <clears throat> every single image of earth yeah. is the photoshop It's just that's all it is it's, it's it, come on man it's casey i'm, I'm not in intending
1: his... to write a blog post refuting flat earthers anytime soon <laughs> okay good i so i don't i don't see that as a as a substantial constituency in the in the kind of space arena if you know what i mean whereas there is a constituency in the space arena that holds that uh, radiation is too dangerous to do anything on mars or to do anything on the moon for humans um, and even that, if we let it chill for a few hundred years just uh, space just radiation like um nuclear oh just as it exists currently, yeah yeah it's, it's oh, okay. mostly from the sun but
0: not to do with the terraforming or something like that
1: yeah 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 obviously oh, so okay. some people say we're going to terraform by nuking the place i don't i don't i don't think that's uh okay that's a going concern i have a blog about that as oh, well. oh yeah i was gonna say <laughs> that's <when> I- <laughs> one of that was one yeah. of the i wrote that blog years ago but um but it, it slots really well into the current current schema so i think i'm onto something <laughs> um so yeah so i actually you know i think it, it is possible in it that in our lifetime um if we eat enough great uh, vegetables we'll live long enough to see you know many many people living on mars and and, and beginning beginning efforts to warm the warm the planet up and um Um, you know the first step to take Mars which is currently a mostly vacuum uh, frigid wasteland um, with poisonous dirt and radiation falling from the skies is to um, is to thicken up the atmosphere and warm it up a little bit and uh, warm it up enough that you get liquid water and how do we do um, that? well it's a complicated process but there's a couple (laughs) of different ways Uh, you can nuke it Uh, that's probably the least sensible way Um, my favorite method is to build factories on the surface that um, produce um, perfluorocarbons um, which is basically um, things like the, the fluid that makes a, a cigarette lighter work. Um, but instead of having hydrogens in there, they've got fluorine atoms. Um, and they're extremely, extremely powerful greenhouse gases.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we need to go there, poison it up nice so that it but well, These the chemicals themselves it.
1: are not... I mean, the, the synthesis process of the chemicals can involve some uh, poisonous products you know like it's, it's similar, similar similar chemistry to making teflon so mm-hmm. you know you have to be a little bit sensible about how you cook these things uh, and not you know
0: and there would just be humans drink there the waste. wearing masks doing this factory work all day or well, this would be
1: automated it would all, for- have to be robots it would have to be robots but um but you know essentially the scale on which you'd have to extract fluorite from from the crust to do this is is much much less than the scale at which we currently extract coal from the earth so you know which is about 20 cubic kilometers a year mm-hmm. um, so it's it's a fairly it's a fairly interesting like the amount of gas you actually need to to substantially warm the planet is a reasonably small fraction of the overall atmosphere mm-hmm. um and then once the planet starts to warm up then uh then other like carbon dioxide and stuff that's frozen out onto the surface it's so cold there's actually dry ice snow <laughs> uh will, will kind of out gas and and um have a kind of runaway warming effect which has actually almost certainly occurred historically i'm not an expert on on uh, mars paleo atmosphere but um but we do have evidence that that um, even even into the recent, you know, real, reasonably recent uh, past, perhaps in the last few hundred million years, um, like a sufficiently large asteroid impact or something on Mars has, has warmed the planet up enough, like thickened up the atmosphere enough that it's been wet enough for liquid water to flow mm-hmm. for a while, like maybe a thousand years or, two, or ten thousand years. Or something. So if we had our and then factories. and then it freezes out again. So we have factories that just stop it from freezing out again, and we make the atmosphere <laughs> warm and dense and liquid water, and the atmosphere is poisonous, carbon dioxide. No, don't breathe it but mm. you can walk around with a scuba suit on like a scuba mask kind of situation or a face mask instead of having to wear a space suit which is much <laughs> cooler. and and, and, and pr- primitive plants and things can survive um, or you can you can run plants in greenhouses with a little like like enormous greenhouses with, with a little bit of enriched oxygen or something like that um, and in the Mars trilogy Kim Stanley Robinson says oh we'll just take some genes out of crocodiles and things that are able to die for, for an hour at a time by tolerating extremely high levels of carbon dioxide and we'll just put those genes into other Organisms that will need to survive with very high levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and see how we go. <laughs> so, I think, I think ultimately, it'll be easier to genetically modify things we want to live on Mars than it will be to um, to give Mars a, a oxygen like a breathable atmosphere in the in the near future. Yeah, <laughs> but we'll see. I don't know. I'm not an expert on that. That's someone <laughs> else's problem.
0: Well, then, getting one thing I want to touch on getting into that is, and this goes back to maybe you wanting to unify everyone through Twitter or just through. Uh, everyone having access to information to see mm. the reasoning the logic behind it I well, want so people to think
1: it's, it's believable and it's possible right. and it's, it's worth fighting for and, and
0: and be in on it to like yeah I want to go and to contribute yeah, yeah and to, find,
1: and to you know, get, get so the, here's my question with that
0: so and this ties a little bit to and I don't uh, I can edit this out if this is too revelatory about JPL but <laughs> in some of the rovers and things that are being worked on you yes. mentioned and looking at it from the observation area it's very I kept referencing the Mike TV scene in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory mm-hmm. where everyone's Wearing kind of these white suits with goggles, and they just—they're just kind of faceless, nameless workers. And you said like they need to have a high, like you know, technical understanding, but also you don't want them really overthinking things. Part one A goes here, part B three goes here, and yeah. just do that. Know what those mean and know where they go. But if I'm the guy working at the auto shop. And I'm invested. I've learned from Twitter, especially. And now I follow you. I'm like, I'm a Casey Hanberg guy. I like him. I want to go to Mars. I think we can have humans oh, on Mars. my defense. Yeah. And then, but, but I submit my resume or an application and they go, well, as you know, humanity's all about classes and you're not on the you don't have the resume. You have the education to be on this end. Mm. So you are a 1A goes to 3B type person and don't overthink it. And you're like, "But I I I figured out this carburetor problem. I yeah. we all want to believe in ourselves and solve problems." So on one hand, you said like, and I agree that humans will solve the problems. We'll see what's we want people that are intuitive and insightful. Yeah. But at the other on the other side, we just want people the, to be kind of robots just putting things in place and don't mess well, it's up it's kind them. of a
1: tension isn't it right a little bit because yeah. because you know from the perspective of private employers ideally all their employees are fungible like they're replaceable right so mm-hmm. none of them are too special and if they die or leave or resign or something you can replace them with someone else and and ideally the more replaceable they are the easier it is to replace them so hang on that's a tautology um so you know the the more you can depress the wages you have to pay them because there's more of them so yeah so that's kind of you know, when when companies are trying to design processes around how they develop and and ship the products, they want to essentially use as generic as possible uh, <laughs> laborers. Um, on the other hand, if you're an individual laborer, then you want to make your product as as unique and valuable as possible, so that you can yeah. you can take the track of like the individual contributor rather than the generic, you know, Italian chocolate factory, Oompa Loompa kind of enslaved laborer somewhere. Yeah. Um, and. So you know that's that's obviously a concern that's not unique to space development. Um, now, as it happens, right now you can go to space. I mean, um, n- not you personally or me personally, but but uh, if you happen to be Story Musgrave or someone like that, and you've got you know a PhD in in in, uh, in advanced science, and you're also a medical doctor who cuts brains for a living, and you're also a fighter jet pilot and a parachute instructor, and you know successful entrepreneur, yeah, uh, like Story Musgrave, you should read his, uh, Twitter, uh, his LinkedIn profile if you if you want to feel depressed press someday. Um, then you can go to space. He actually went to space six times. I mean, like, I don't see what the big deal is. He, he was the mission specialist on the Hubble telescope, so he got to fix all the problems with the Hubble telescope. Um, but, you know, for regular regular folks, going to space is, if it's something you're hell-bent on doing, it's it's pretty non-trivial. Uh, you know, you have to either be extremely rich or extremely unusual. I'm mm-hmm. going to put it that way. Um, and, and right now, I think something 600 people have ever been to space, which is a pretty small number. So um, why
0: this impulse? Because we've talked but, about... But oh, in I'm the sorry. future...
1: Sorry, I just remember where I was going... Um you know, if Starship does what we think Starship's gonna do and Starlink makes as much money as we hope Starlink's gonna make, then then it will be cheap enough to go to space that a uh, car mechanic, if they want to go to space, can save up mm-hmm. and just go, right? Yeah. And if they want to go to Mars, then they might have to sell their house to go. But they can, right? And people who are working on Mars will be able to negotiate for high salaries to be paid to their relatives on Earth. There's not much point in having money on Mars, nothing to buy. Yeah. But but the cost of getting people to Mars and keeping them alive there is so high that the cost of paying them a salary is like essentially arbitrary it's like why people who work in oil rigs make a lot of money because that's just part of the overhead like it's just (laughs) a tiny overall part of the expense and it's really important to have people out there who are doing what they're meant to do um in terms of in terms of you know um how much creativity is required to do a particular job um i would hate hate for people who whose job it is to to meticulously follow instructions to take the wrong thing from this it's very important that that the people who are suited to that sort of work who, who enjoy that sort of work and enjoy the the precision and, and the, the care and so on that requires are around because you know maintaining a car maybe is a little more experimental you, you kind of know what you're doing and you don't have to follow a checklist you just kind of do it and you know, yeah. you've done it a hundred times and it's fine but if you're the sort of person who say maintaining a jet engine or, or you know, fight, flight critical part on an airplane um, there is a checklist and if you don't follow the checklist then sooner or later someone's going to die and it's going to be your fault so <laughs> you just follow the damn checklist and the same thing goes for pilots so I go, I'm a pilot and i um, and you learn to fly, and you know basically learn what to do if something goes wrong. That's that's all of what learning to fly is. To, what flying itself is easy. The, the, what to do when things go wrong which is the hard part. Um, and and you very quickly learn that even with the simplest planes, if you don't follow the checklist, you'll forget something sooner or later. And it might just be like leaving the lights off or whatever. But you can go on YouTube right now and find hundreds of videos of people who forgot to put the landing gear down before they landed. <laughs> it's very very sad. It's like fifty thousand dollar mistake. So um, don't don't do that if you follow the checklist you will never make that mistake and you will never have to <laughs> fork out tell, tell your wife or husband why you need to fork out fifty thousand dollars to repair your stupid plane that just <laughs> broke because you forgot to put the wheels down um and the reality is that anyone who does stuff in adversarial environments like uh, unfriendly environments follows checklists so it doesn't matter if you're an oil rig worker or a specialty who works in antarctica or we work in space astronauts do this all the time or you, you work on rockets or whatever uh you assemble airplanes um <coughs> or your surgeon or anything essentially where you have to get it one hundred percent right one hundred percent of the time, everyone just follows checklists, so you to go in the movies and see you know James Bond kind of jumping off trains and things like that it's it's very exciting but but in reality, in the real world, you can't rely on humans to get it right all the time, just because they want to yeah you, you have to give them the tools, and one of those tools is a checklist so that you don't find that that critical widget that's meant to work doesn't work because someone forgot to plug something in you know just you can't rely on memory
0: yeah no i get i mean i i definitely see that and hopefully as yeah. if i'm the carburetor person i go got it okay good and if i for whatever reason something comes along down the line and i go oh th- this is this part that's always looks this way this one looks a little different that's about the most i can do to show so my supervisor comes over and says, oh you're right yeah it was manufactured incorrectly here's a correct one Keep at it.
1: Reject, reject.
0: Yeah. Well, so one of the things
1: that I wrote about, I wrote a book on industrializing Mars a couple of years ago. Um, it's available free on my website. I'm not, I'm not here to try and sell a book. Um, and, uh, and there's a chapter which talks about labor structure on Mars. And one of the things that I think is not widely appreciated um, about building cities on Mars, because most people haven't really thought that much about it before, <laughs> is, um, is that uh, we're going to have to rely on a lot of robotic and me- mechanized labor. Um, but even so... Humans will be extremely expensive. Like, the time will be extremely expensive. Uh, it's, it's, robots are extremely expensive in space, but humans are much more expensive proportionally. So, and what
0: level, of, are we talking about <coughs> any level of intelligence with these robots? Should I be able to say, Alexa, go over there and dig a post hole? And then this robot goes, okay. It goes over there and just starts drilling. Or am I having a human that I have to pay a lot of money? Hey, take this out there to these coordinates, set it up. And I, don't,
1: then, I don't really know the answer to that. Um, in in the book, I talk about about using robotic labor is an abstraction from physical labor. So the first, the first say you've got to drill a hole you, you dig a hole by hand, right. Or, or turn a crank. Um, the, the next best way to do that is to have a motor, turn the crank for you and you just hold the motor. Right. Mm. It turns out that, you know, a cheap drill, it's 25 bucks of Amazon or something, but a drill that can drill itself, like hold its own drill. Like yeah. the Mars rover is two and a half billion dollars. So, <laughs> so it's, um, it's, it's, you know, you, you, optimize what you can optimize. And it turns out that using human muscle to, to like break rocks, is dumb, yeah. uh, but using human muscle to uh, and brains and stuff to align the rock-breaking machines, which ideally are, you know, giant diggers and trucks the size of a city block. Mm-hmm. Great, you yeah. know, it's like Uber but for robots, right? <laughs> um, and and that kind of makes sense in terms of interfacing the outside world. Most of the stuff that's hard, I think, to do on, on Mars, or any Mars or any any space city that's trying to become industrially self-sufficient is manufacturing. It's it's all about um, essentially taking in in crushed up piles of dirt at one end extracting you know a thousand different grades of of uh of alloys of metal and steel and uh, aluminium and copper and other important things um and other chemicals and plastics and things and uh and then you know carving them down to the right shapes and and molding them or stamping them or whatever and then assembling them and then checking them and fitting them and installing wiring harnesses and computers and all the rest of it and then getting it out the door but uh, why that's are we incredibly labor intensive
0: right yeah well, but the whole overall thing to me with the why do this? Why just to have more humans on Mars, just to show we can do it, just to solve these problems?
1: Well, that's a good question, and it's actually a future blog topic, so I'm, 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 <laughs> oh, okay. I'm glad that I'm getting some, I haven't started writing it yet, um, I'm glad I'm getting some practice here. Because um, I
0: think of you, especially a lone traveler, you got your backpack, your emaciated you're really having a moment to sit there and think like why am i doing this and then oh many many
1: moments to sit there and think <laughs> why the hell am i doing this this is stupid no i'm but stuck yeah, here in this in this like ghost town for five days before someone drives by to get but me there
0: out. must have been something worthwhile about it some sort of existential well it's either this or nothing and or it's because oh i saw this because i had this interaction with this person but there's gotta trying be to understand
1: I'm trying to understand like my place in the universe on a personal scale or individual scale and i think Mm -hmm. um to to really belabor or 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 abuse the metaphor um pushing humans um beyond their current comfort areas into into new frontiers Mm um whether they be space or you know other potential places and other potential destinations um is about the same thing understanding our place in the universe but on a collective scale
0: Mm -hmm. right
1: and and even though there's something really kind of attractive and, and romantic about going off into the wilderness by self with a backpack and doing the whole into the wild thing and being self-sufficient and so on. Um, and it is actually possible to do, you know, like you can live as an individual, uh, using stone age level technology in most environments on earth, if you know enough and mm-hmm. you're lucky enough, um, there are environments which are too harsh to do that, where you can't do it without friends, yeah. um, cooperative cooperation, specialization. Um, and, and that, that, know kind of continues that it's a it's a, um, a spectrum if you like or a continuum of of adversarial environments right and you know see how long you' last five meters under the water <laughs> you know with stone edge level tools it's it's uh, well, you don't have they- to go very far to find some place that will kill you really quickly of course it's possible to survive indefinitely five meters under the water with modern technology in a submarine or something mm-hmm. um, but now you're talking well how do you build a submarine what's you know you need you need thousands of specialized workers who know how to build all those different parts that go together and and mars cities a mars city is something that's a little bit like you know a giant aircraft carrier or a submarine or something like out in the middle of the ocean surrounded by uh, land that's inhospitable for human life and the really hard part is that it has to somehow last indefinitely um Mm -hmm. you know and you can you can resupply it occasionally like drop some supplies off or something but um but you know ideally, you wouldn't be dropping off enormous supplies of bulk materials that you can easily obtain locally. Um, and, and by the same token, you know, do you really want to be in the situation where 500 years down the track, you're still waiting for a shipment from Earth of computer chips that you desperately need to run all the robots mm-hmm. uh, or to run the new robots, um, and that doesn't arrive for whatever reason? Uh, you know, that's, that's a bad situation to be in.
0: So. <laughs> did they, I, I think of it as the person that went out in the woods, did it, and they come back in 10, 15 years later, yeah. Ted Kaczynski, to some degree. I mean, he had a town he could bicycle to. Twenty years though out there in that shack, and they found him. He wasn't dying of any particular disease or starvation. He was alive. I don't know if I'd hold up Ted Kaczynski as the <laughs> Not as, as chef, the alpha
1: role, model of, of alpha role model of alpha model of self sufficiency. Yeah,
0: no, no. I'm, I'm thinking of <laughs> someone. Ten again, ten or fifteen years. They have animal pelts. They have homemade shoes. Have you read Make Dumb it. Hatchet by Gary Poulsen? Oh, yeah, I love it. Yeah, that sort of thing. Or, or okay. My Side of the Mountain. Yeah. yeah. Or, or and of course, so these are fiction, person, fiction so you, books,
1: but, but, you know, but Mad Verse Wild is the same basic idea. Yeah. yeah.
0: And someone probably out there is doing it right now. We're on just YouTube. not. On yeah. YouTube. You
1: can see it. You can look it up. It's like no, primitive this technology or something. fully
0: off the grid, which seems yeah. so impossible to do. But you hear about like these hermits oh, yeah. and things. Yeah, yeah. Go find this guy. He comes in, and now he walks into a home where someone goes, oh, Home, lights on home that starts talking and you're in this weird future world like what would that i wonder if the human like desire or competitive nature whatever it would be that of this person again in like animal pelts mm. homemade everything but been living cooking their own food foraging for things setting traps now they see this house would it be like a challenge to them to be like oh can i master this world too i Possibly. figured out the nature one now Possibly. can i do we this we do one? know
1: that children that um that were separated from their parents at a young age and raised by wolves like mm-hmm. wolf children or something tend not to be able to readjust when they're rescued later in life oh, like in the, you know the age of 10 or something
0: mm-hmm.
1: um if they if they go like if they make it to the age of five or something and they haven't learned to speak they yeah. basically never learn to speak yeah. for some reason. And there's very few contemporary cases of this happening, at least with animals. There's occasionally cases of children found who have been neglected, but uh, it's always always very, very sad. Um, but they don't, you know, it's, uh, you know, that that sort of level of adjustments very difficult. Um, one of the reasons that I did all this travel when I was a kid um, or a younger man was that I really wanted to f- see what it felt like to experience the universe without intermediation between my eyes and what was out there, mm-hmm. which I kind of... <clears throat> in order to find out who I was because I found that like my environment in some ways reflected you know aspects of my personality and um friends and so on it was kind of in a way noise or or confusion but if I went out far enough into the wilderness into a place where I didn't know anyone didn't speak the language um there were very very few people there and it was basically just uh, the Russians would call pustina or like desert but not dry just like wilderness yeah um that uh, or deserted um that if I saw anything at all it would only be my own reflection you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think it's very easy to kind of romanticize that, that rugged self-sufficiency and, and all the rest of it, like the American pioneering spirit and the, 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 the man and the, and the donkey and oh, the mule and 20 acres and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And that's great. Um, and I think it's also, it's very worthwhile to have gone through that experience because then you can understand the value of not having to rely on it <laughs> um, yeah. because for people who aren't, you know, fighting fit 22 year olds, um, you know, ideally uh, in perfect health, uh, you know, um, who are very lucky. Yeah. Um, you, essentially don't live that long. And one of my hobbies is, is one of my by far most boring hobbies is genealogy and I happen to have records of how all my ancestors, the same genetic material as me. Um lived and they never lived all that long you know because (laughs) because if you're relying on luck it's only a matter of time until you know something heavy falls on you or you break a leg or your teeth rot away or whatever and it's all gone you know and it's it's very easy to romanticize like oh it's kind of rugged existence living out in the wilderness with animal pelts and so on but then you realize you only got two teeth left and you're dying at the age of 42 of like gangrene or something like it's not much fun so
0: but i think of them as two weirdly parallel worlds in that problem solving Ah oh, man, I can't figure out how to s- trap these things. Oh, yeah. ooh, I'll change my snare so the tension's this way. I solve that problem. I can't yes. figure out how to cook it. I can't <clears how to throat> figure out how to make a fork. I have a spoon or a ladle. Solve, solve, solve all these problems. Then on the other side, we've solved problems to a level where you can kind of just sit in a chair and exist and have everything brought to you. We're not solving the problems personally anymore. Yeah, it seems like we're. Well, something to remember, that. which is
1: like humans. Humans have been around for a very long time. Well, not like. Dinosaur level time, but like hundreds of thousands of years, um, like tens of thousands of generations, and um, we have very limited archaeological evidence of their lives of people. Mm-hmm. Like you know, the, the oldest human whose name we know is like eight thousand years old or something like that. Like it's <laughs> it's it's almost nothing. It's like five percent of the total time that humans have been on the earth, um, and but in, in ancient time we do have like archaeological records or remains that that from which we can derive that the people who led these lives were just as smart as we were. And just as, like, you know, careful about mm. how they went about living. Yeah. And, and they, took no ch- they took very few chances, right? And especially, um, you know, again, Kim Stanley Robinson has written a fabulous book about this called Shaman, which is a kind of a science fiction novel set 20,000 years ago. Um, and it's about, you know, and it, it's preoccupied with the challenges of, of finding enough food and storing enough food to last you through the winter and, and learning enough stuff from the shaman about which plants and animals are good and which ones are bad before he dies, you know, mm-hmm. and all that knowledge that he accumulated in his life is lost and has to be rediscovered and yeah. lost and rediscovered and lost and rediscovered, you know. But but you look at, like, for instance, the, um, the, Iceman, the, Ötzi, the Iceman, the the frozen body yeah. they found in Switzerland. And um, there's actually a person on my Twitter, I've forgotten their name, who who's currently trying to rape, make all the stuff they found with him, like mm-hmm. using... Authentic tools, and and it's very very interesting to see how this is done. Um, there's a there's a YouTube channel called Clickspring which is uh, going through the process of recreating some um, ancient Greek clockwork that was discovered in a wreck about a hundred years ago, from like twenty about four hundred BC or something like that. Same sort of s- situation is going on. These people did not have internet. They did not have phones. They did not have like yeah. stack exchange to figure out what to do. But what they were doing with what they had was at the absolute limit of human ability. Yeah. Like they weren't phoning it in by any means. You look at old stone tools of like made of flint and stuff and you can find these out in the desert if you know where to look. Um, <clears throat> and we've got stone tools going back on well, probably millions of years. And you look at how meticulously these stone points that they used to hunt animals and stuff have been yeah. made. There's no one alive today who knows how to do that, right? Because it takes 20 years of practice of just like, chipping little tiny bits of flint off to make something that exquisitely perfect yeah right? and, and there are people who are very good at it and they, they look at these these finds that someone just randomly tossed away like some human tossed away <laughs> 20,000 years ago and they're like this is this was their garbage and I can't even figure out how to do it like, if
0: I, I pitched a show at one you know, point that was just trying current style to make the whole like arc of each season would be just building something that seems so simple that we all use try making but, like, a pencil yeah or a toaster it. At even just a bow and arrow you know oh, you yeah, would yeah, have yeah. a full episode on just how especially going back to using like sinew and tendons and things and like how do you get this oh, compound bows incredible. yeah incredible
1: yeah so if uh, they're described in the um in the uh the iliad i think but possibly the odyssey no it's described in the odyssey is the compound bow that odysseus used to hunt and his native Ithaca, and um and this was a, a weapon that you know uh, th- th- these weapons, as, as same as the English longbows, had essentially been mythological since very few of them had survived to the present day. And the way they were described in these t- ancient texts didn't seem to match up with what humans were capable of doing now yeah know? and then they found a whole bunch of these bows in a in a shipwreck at one point um oh, really? the english longbows and and they found some remnants of of parts in various burials and of mycenaean burials and stuff of uh, of these ancient greek weapons and they've been able to make modern reproductions using sinews and animal fat as glue and things yeah. like that and they're like yeah it has a draw force of 140 pounds or something crazy like that like the people who are able to use these weapons must have been practicing with them their whole lives like from from like the first wisp of puberty through the dying day they were just drawing and firing arrows all day or every day and you find their skeletons every now and then and they're just like bent and deformed from the forces that it put on their body to wow. to use these arrows and and the you know but that's that's essentially was life and death so they got really good at it and the story in in the odyssey is that uh is that you know the bow odysseus's bow was so strong no one else could string it could even put the string on it they didn't know how
0: that's believable yeah I, You know, like we have this thing that pandas can sit there and just kind of, hey, sloths. A variety, it seems like, of other animals can just kind of hang out. And with us, we do to a certain degree. A lot of people can just hang out. But to the whatever percentage of the population that would be just walking along and seeing a couple stones and maybe just pick it up out of boredom and start chipping at it and that all these little dopamine things start happening in the brain of like, now I have something to do. There's no school. There's no job. You're oh, just yeah. kind of saying a Entertaining You're- humans is a full-time job. Ooh, and you find something that entertains <laughs> yourself that much. You're like, guys, I made this arrowhead. Yeah. It's perfect.
1: Yeah. So I think the most... So, I mean, there are many, many arguments out there for for space exploration and, and some of them I found more attractive at various times than others um, and one of them that has gotten a lot of play recently is oh we need to build a, a city on Mars or, or the moon or whatever and and it's gonna be a backup and you know it's basically just like a branch of humanity and then when stuff on Earth goes wrong you know we'll be okay it won't be an extinction event and I, th- I feel it's kind of dark like I feel like we should be actively aiming for the indefinite survival of humanity wherever they exist, (laughs) on every continent on Earth and throughout the universe. Um, And I don't think that's harsh. And there really is an undercurrent, especially um, amongst people my age, of like defeatism. Like, you know, the climate situation is getting bad and where our children are going to grow up in a world where they have to eat each other you know and, and
0: or, I, I or a weird mutation of us having what do they say like a credit card's worth of plastic in our bodies all the time oh I mean there's, there's all kinds of salient environmental challenges but the question is
1: how do you react to those do you see these challenges and you say well I guess you know like someone 20,000 years ago that glacier is getting closer every year yeah. and the bear is giant and it's going to eat my children and I better give up And and I think Throughout history, actually, like there have been people who thought that way, and they didn't last very long. Um, and in particular, like mental illness is a real issue, and and I think you know, prior to the modern era, if people got you know depressed or something, they just died; like they weren't very well cared for. Um, but but I think you know, especially given that my generation is the generation that's going to be assuming power in the next twenty or thirty years, we need to start thinking. No, actually, we're going to take a aggressive, forward looking action towards mm-hmm. the future, um, and and this hasn't been done in a couple of generations, I think. Like the generation before the baby boomers, um, you know, it was their bad luck to grow up in the depression in the second world war, you know, like but they turned around at the end of that and said, Well, that was fucked up, let's not do that again. Yeah. You know. Um and it kind of rebuilt the rebuilt Europe and rebuilt the world and, and, you know, for better and for worse and they did some stuff good and some stuff not so good. Uh, we've had an unprecedented period of prosperity and growth around the world, throughout the world, and you know one of the consequences of that is we've burned a lot of oil and a lot of coal in the process, and now that's going to cause problems, but we're, we're able to solve them. You know, all these problems are extremely solvable. It's not even all that expensive to solve them. You know, in some cases, the solution to these problems is actually cheaper than doing whatever it is we're currently doing.
0: Even with sea life and coral reefs and things that we may, we're just, we'll get used to living without them. What, what do you <coughs> say is solvable? Air quality? The, I think everything's human solvable. Human staying
1: alive? All of it. Yeah, I think I think if we, if, you know, barring a, a catastrophe, um, which, which you know, you can't really predict catastrophes, that by definition, they're unpredictable. Um, barring a catastrophe, uh, you know, provided we... Uh, you know, appropriately optimistic and ambitious about having a vision for a future which is you know expansive for humanity. Um, we can solve all these problems if we live long enough. Uh, we'll live to see. Like if I live into my 90s, I will live to see um, you know major ecological restoration around the world, um, the extension of of, you know, life expectancy to essentially everyone in the, the the abolition of poverty, the abolition of, of, um, you know, geographic discrimination or or apartheid. Um, and all these, all these other issues, which kind of
0: plagued the 20th century in a way. Does your optimism from this stem largely from the, and I will say patriarchs of the fossil fuel industries that are just holding on for all they can right now, knowing that like, let's just ride it out. Yeah, we've done a lot of damage, but we are, also is part of it, and and I think it's it's very easy
1: to be like, oh, you know, oil executives do the worst stuff, and, and certainly the Coke's don't hold up a, oh, the, the one surviving Coke um, doesn't <laughs> doesn't doesn't hold up like a placard for like progressive values. Um, that said, one of the things that I learned from Robert Zubrin, and if he ever hears this, it'll shock him to hear me say this, um, uh, which which is an excellent point, and he has very unconventional and I'd have to say wrong views about a lot of climate related stuff, but one thing he's absolutely dead right about is that oil, as sticky, awful, horrible as it is, as damaging to the environment as it is to extract it and burn it, is the single greatest thing that ever happened to the world's poor. Because availability of, of refined gasoline to make engines work is the difference between planting crops with animal or human muscle and driving a tractor, mm-hmm. right? And driving a truck, right? And so it's the difference between essentially having so little economic power that you're a, like a surf, Um, or peasant um, with, with essentially no prospect of life, (laughs) you know, like, like, I mean, sorry, if you're a peasant listening to this podcast, (laughs) retain hope, things will get better, but you know, let's not beat around the bush here. There's nothing romantic about being a peasant in 1900 or 1800 or 1700, right? It's a life that is sucked, a lifestyle that we should, we should move away from as quickly as possible for everyone who remains in that position. And there are some people out there who still don't like millions or billions of people out there who don't really have access to Dispatchable mechanical energy, which is what oil does. Heating is also important for people who live in freezing cold places. But, <laughs> um, but you know, and and so really, when we say, "Wow, well, we need to we need to be serious about curbing climate change," we need to eradicate the use of just like close every single oil well down tomorrow. That is. A little bit over the top, I think. Like, I think that's more likely to result in in short and long-term harm than saying, let's use the existing oil infrastructure we've got and the existing technological power we've got to move away from it as quickly as we can. Well, if we can look at the, but not by violence, not by force, sure, and not by like the compulsory, you know, reinstantiation of poverty for five, six billion yeah. people on Earth, you know, like that's let's not do that.
0: <laughs> to look at practical benefits and assess them, and have the benefit of some hindsight and say, yeah. oh, okay, well, if we could redo this again, we would have eliminated at least this part, and this part, and this part. Maybe let's eliminate where we go or how we go. Yeah, we, we could go into this pristine wilderness in Alaska. Maybe we shouldn't. Very I don't think expensive. we should I don't think we should but the, that would be, that's where I guess like democracy comes in and people go yeah you know if you look at it there's a million acres if we do this to 10 of them I can live with that and you go yeah. really okay well I wouldn't have voted that way but you guys all decided okay well I mean plastics mine's however, however, a part
1: of life you know uh, this is a future future <coughs> blog I've got as well and, and especially in space a lot of people are being like oh great we've we've mined the crap out of the earth and now we're going to go and mine the moon and we'll destroy the moon's environment as well and, and there's two halves of that one is that you know when you look around a place like the United States, a huge country, overwhelmingly rich natural resources, you say, "Well, we have a choice here. Either we, we live, you know, traditional indigenous lifestyles, a population of a couple million people, and and we don't have a high enough population to maintain any kind of technological ability." So. We just say goodbye to all that stuff, and we die of tooth to um, <laughs>
0: decay. We just watch it. We watch our relatives have appendicitis, which I had last year. Would yeah. have died a hundred years ago, probably. Oh yeah. And then we just watch them. And go, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Limited population here. Good and luck. And then the
1: sad thing there is, there'll be a couple of generations where they'll remember that it was once possible to fix it, Um and then that'll be forgotten as well <laughs> because we won't have the ability to make books or preserve libraries or, or writing or anything like yeah. that. So, so you say goodbye to that. Um, so we say no. Actually, you know while it would be nice, you know, a nice, uh, especially, um, you know, aesthetic statement to say we will preserve the entirety of the surface of the earth in its, in its natural state, let it evolve according to like weather and geological processes. We say, no, we have to prioritize some things here. Right? We'll make some big national parks and we'll preserve the areas of exceptional natural beauty, but the places that are, you know, fairly generic looking, um, that that have stuff underground that we need well you know it's the best that we can do we're gonna to have to dig a hole and get it out because yeah. we need metal to make cars and we need metal to make houses and we need metal to make dental fillings you know like mm-hmm. we just need it you know? and we can say well you know there's two, there's multiple ways of making a mine and we're gonna try and make a mine so that when we're done extracting stuff we can put the dirt back in and we won't have poisoned the groundwater forever and that's why we have things like the EPA who have like try and create some environmental like regulatory pressure to try and you know enforce um sustainable ways of, of extracting materials uh from the crust but at the same time like not make them a million times more expensive so that aluminium and steel are only things that like the 0.001% have access to yeah. you know like, like it was throughout history so you know it's, it's obviously a complicated balance when it comes to the moon uh, I you know I, I see the moon like every day and it, it mocks me, it mocks me <laughs> with our, with our <laughs> puny rockets. Sucks. Yeah. Your, your rockets are tiny and your political <laughs> vision is small and, <laughs> and you haven't even been here in 50 years. You suck. Um, and so I think, well, if I could get there, I'd dig a hole just to show it, just to teach it. Uh, but the, the surface of the moon is, you know, so uh, there's radiation, radiation infested, created smashed,
0: hellhole. Digging with a shovel going, this will show you. Take this moon. Take that. Take that. No, I, I
1: mean, I've written a blog about this as well. It's. I'm actually pretty skeptical about the idea of mining the moon for anything. Mm-hmm. There's not much there that we need. It's, yeah. I mean, geologically speaking, it's full of very interesting rocks, you know, from a scientific perspective. Um, but, you know, no one digs mines in Hawaii to get more basalt because basalt is not a useful rock for practically anything. Yeah. Um, maybe some gravel or something, but, but no one doesn't. And then the moon is basically made of the same stuff. And, and I know there are people out there listening to this right now who are like, oh you're an idiot. I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm sure there are areas of the moon that have enriched materials. Like there are on earth as you know, scans with enriched titanium and, and gold and stuff like that. And you probably find them if you look hard enough, mm-hmm. but the challenge is, can you find them in a way that is, you know, let's say a thousand times cheaper than we'd be to find the same material on Earth to make up for the fact that shipping it from the yeah. moon back to Earth is a thousand times more expensive. And, and you mentioned in one of your blogs is, no, that the no you can't.
0: <laughs> cargo capacity on rockets is insanely limited. So it's not like you're packing back all this gold efficiently.
1: Well, I mean, let's say we found something on the moon that was actually valuable enough to make it worthwhile to go there and get it. If it was that valuable, we can afford the rockets to go and build it. Now, the rockets are cheap compared to whatever that would be. Yeah, uh, it would be like a million dollars a kilogram or something. I can't remember exactly what what number I came up with, but but it's kind of in the in the regime of like, you find a mineral and if you eat it, you live forever. You mm-hmm. know, like the elixir of life, like <laughs> like. I mean, it, it's hard to talk sensibly about this because there are a handful of materials that have extremely high values per kilogram, mm-hmm. um, but the usage rate industrially is extremely low because no one can afford them, and so their supply chains on Earth aren't very well developed, and so we don't actually know what their intrinsic cost is. We have a pretty good idea what the intrinsic cost of, of aluminium is because we use so much of it, but how much? What's the intrinsic cost of like some obscure? you know isotope of some platinum group metal fucked if i know like <laughs> it's just how much the one person who happens to got a couple has a couple of atoms of it who sells it to you says it is because you have to pay them or they won't give it to you so it's like <laughs> whatever it is but but even if you multiply the total usage rate by the total cost it's still like on the order of a million or a hundred million dollars a year which is sounds like a lot of money and tell you what, if I had a hundred million dollars a year, I could think of something to spend it on, but it's not very much money in the grand scheme of things. Like a hundred million dollars a year is not barely enough to run a medium sized school. Like let alone run an entire city that is trying to replicate the industrial stack of the United States in a frigid frozen, like radiation infested made micrometeorite bombarded <laughs> vacuum <laughs> waste. Like it's, it's different kind of money. Yeah. It's like, it's like Iraq invasion level money.
0: That. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a quantity that I can't really envision. Or I mean, how could you put a number on it and say like this, this would be it? This would be once you have it at this amount, then it's worth it. How much money? Yeah.
1: Well, uh, the amount of money it costs to build a city on Mars is basically as much money as 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 Elon has available to spend on it, um, times however long it takes him, um, or whoever else goes and does it. Um, Elon has done some incredible things, but I don't think he has a monopoly on doing cool stuff on Mars. Um, the. Um, but but you can actually you make a realistic estimate. You say, well, how much does it cost to build a rocket? How much does it cost to fuel it? How much does it cost to send it? You know, And, um, and so how much does it cost to deliver cargo to Mars? And you say, well, we come up with some number, $1,000 a kilogram in my wildest dreams. And you say, well, how much stuff do we need on Mars? You are like, oh, let's say 10 million kilos. That's about right. It's like a couple of big container ship loads. Um, like just of like CNC machines and yeah. vacuum tubes and stuff like that. Um, so you multiply those numbers together and it gives you, I don't know, 10 billion maybe 10 trillion i can't remember something like that can you help me here it's 10 million (laughs) times a thousand 10 billion 10 billion dollars 10 billion sounds like a lot of money yeah but you'd be spending it over 20 years or something so actually that's not that much money and that's just the cost of shipping the gear it's not the cost of the gear or the cost of sending people there or any other stuff but all those costs together won't be like 100 times the cost of shipping it'll be on the same kind of rough water so you come up with a number and be like yeah it's probably like a billion or a trillion, something like that. seems so like, like a lot of money. it's worth it
0: though. Th- this is maybe a little far afield from that, but we are talking about, uh, before about efficiency with time, with the things we do, mm. where, you know, if you prepare a meal and you have like a limited amount of dirty dishes and or uh, <laughs> junk to throw away. If you like, just oh. use the same
1: pot over and over again, you have to clean it too carefully because <laughs> every single like, meal you just get yeah, to like recycle. Yeah.
0: Oh, and it tastes great. It's got all the different flavors. No, it's I mean, like soup. if you're just efficient in the ways that you are oh I cleaned this because I had four seconds and then that way it was repurposed to it. anyway yeah, 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 we get, well, we do that Mike McDonald's
1: get, happens to be an expert in industrial design for kitchens you have to be way. efficient and no, but, so the people who are working in, in McDonald's kitchens have no superfluous actions everything they're doing is within reach and that's why food is so cheap
0: <laughs> but you have to and then yeah. that becomes us we get ourselves out um, <clears throat> or we, we've tried as much as we can obviously we've we've left quite a wake behind us and we're Humans expand to Mars, and then we get to say Titan. Say we're now out some weird place in like the Kuiper Belt. Let's go to Pluto. Okay, we're on Pluto, yeah. and we make contact. It happened
1: Which is totally a dwarf planet. Sorry, and, haters.
0: And it was just a vacation. I'll spot. find some aliens. And the aliens show up, and they go, "What are you guys doing here? Like, we've never seen you here before." And we're like, "We finally made it. This is a big step for us." Yeah. And you and I are there. And me, for whatever reason, I'm a, I'm recording it for some reason. Yeah, of course, we have a a podcast out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They wanted to take a podcast, or I won some lottery. You're there. Michio Kaku is there Elon's there and a handful of other people and we're all kind of baffled like well these aliens look pretty mellow and they go do you guys want to come see our planet and we're like we have limited Everything we're, we're low yeah. on food and fuel, and, and then, no, no, no. We we figured out this thing that it'll. We can basically get you there in like hyperspeed. Mm. We go okay. That'd and be we, cool. We blink and now we're like looking at their world, and they got to where we got. Yeah. And the world we look at on there is very similar to Earth, yeah. except everything's pretty pristine still, and there's yeah. no smog in the cities. There's no landfills, and we're all well, kind like of goes, scratching. Goes back heads. to my vision
1: for what it'll be in like 2100. Like what Earth will be like in 2100, and I, I think that you know, once we stop like actively making things worse, things will get better quite quickly. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. And and, I I mean, there are areas which have severe problems, but will probably require environmental remediation, but there's no shortage of people who will be like, essentially have things to do because they're going to live a much longer time. And you're assuming that
0: people will want to, or have to do that in a sort of weird communism. Like you guys, all that trash that's blown against that fence at the airport, go clean it up. We make prisoners do that sort of stuff now.
1: In the United States. Yes. Yeah. In other countries, they get paid the minimum wage or whatever. Like, like, one of the strange things about the United States is it's an extremely wealthy country uh, with extremely wealthy cities that are streaming with trash. Like spend some time yeah. in Europe and everything's basically clean. Yeah, um, because I guess they're able to raise taxes and pay for that sort of thing. Um, but yeah. as an example, there's a, there's an exclusion area around Chernobyl, um, the, the the meltdown reactor Wait, so, to, in to, Eastern Europe.
0: Well, Let's to go back to that yeah, first. Sorry. I want to so in my, my scenario that I created. Yes. We've reached them. I was warned by the NASA press officer about about
1: podcasters being like, "Tell me where the aliens are." <laughs> um, so, no,
0: know, we I, we've agreed. We we just kind of run into them at a vacation spot they go to, which happens to be Pluto. At a yeah, certain I mean, if aliens if
1: aliens are out there, and we have no evidence whatsoever to suggest that, suggest that there is intelligent life outside of Earth, right? Um, but if they if they are out there and they find us here, then by definition, they have better rockets than we do.
0: Okay, uh, at so least so at that least would explain. hyperspace rockets.
1: That said, one of the interesting kind of um, concepts that I've explored for, for a science fiction uh, you know, novel or something is that there might be some sentient life and uh, like Enceladus or Europa or something, one of the outside moons. And actually NASA, they like we have a mission planned that's going to go to Europa and look for signs of life there because there is a a salty ocean there that could have potentially life and that'd be a pretty cool thing to find. But, you know, it's a big stretch from like a couple of like bacteria or something to being like, there's, you know, sentient fish that can build uh, rocket ships and fly around. Um, (laughs) But one of the things that might surprise them if if they're fish that live in an ocean world, which means everything is aqueous, um, is that they would probably not really understand combustion because like oxygen would be present but it would be dissolved in water and it would oxidize things slowly. but slowly you know like if they might have like a, a laboratory which they, they can have like gas phase stuff and they like make oxygen occasionally. like that's that's a very very dangerous industrial chemical like don't use it because it's it's super super dangerous and if you mm. if you know have any chemists who listen to your show like it'd be like you know the what's it, it di- difluorodioxide or some like other uh, heinous or trifluoro uh, trifluorochloride trifluorofy i'm not a real rocket scientist here um, essentially know. like in Industrial chemicals or, or chemicals that aren't even industrial chemicals, like extremely dangerous rocket fuels that are made up every now and then. Uh, you know, you, just, you basically stay away. Like, don't don't mess with that <laughs> or piranha solution or something like that. It's, it's going to end your life. Um, and so they don't really understand combustion, which means that even though they've got good telescopes and they're aware that on on Earth, you know, and, and this is a hypothetical situation uh, that, that you know there's there's life down there and there's even some sentient life because they've seen evidence of our of our civilizations stuff. They say, well, they'll never be able to come and visit us because there's no way they could get out of that gravity well, right? Yeah. And then and then suddenly like a clipper or whatever like voyager scuds by and they're like where did that come from and then you know they realize that we've figured out some way of taking this you know heinous industrial chemical oxygen and burning it and creating these rocket motors which are able to like lift like one percent of the mass of the rocket off the planet and send it out there and they're like that is scary as hell so unlike (laughs) unlike most alien films of vin diesel in them or something where the aliens like super strong and powerful like obviously humans are the super strong powerful ones who are able to like (laughs) make crazy powerful machines and fight each other and that would feel
0: cool i just i think the
1: like have the movies like rambo
0: yeah yeah we're (laughs) that would be fun if they just adored us like oh my god how'd you lift that up and we could do you mean this and be just real tough guys in front of them i think the Thing well, that we have to hope me. they'd
1: like us. We have to hope they'd any, like us because any any civilization or technology. I mean, it's a similar sort of situation as like imagine um, nuclear armed forces, you know, in the nineteen sixties or something, encounter a band of humans in the Amazon or something living traditional lifestyle, like Stone Age. Yeah, They say Stone Age, but like a Neolithic um, uh, lifestyle. Like, like you'd have to hope they like you, right? Because if if they don't like you you probably won't even be aware that they don't like you. You'll just disappear. And if there's, if you've got a spaceship that's capable of flying from a nearby star to Earth in like a human lifetime. Right, without us detecting it. there. No, 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 just just so quickly. Like oh, in a human yeah. lifetime. There's a kind of a metric you can think of like the the advancedness of a civilization, which is like the dispatchable energy per individual or per, unit time or whatever. And so the dispatchable energy for a lone human is like a couple of kilowatts on a bicycle or something. But if you've got access to a giant truck, you know, it could be like a thousand horsepower or something, which is like a thousand times as much. And if you're flying a jet plane or a rocket, it's much more than that still. But if you're able to get on a rocket ship, uh, get on some kind of, you know, like Star Destroyer from Star Wars or something and like go into hyperspace and jump across the galaxy. Like that's that's like much, much more energy. That Way you're able to deep. harness, that yeah. you're able to usefully use. Or, like, something like Star Trek, for example. Yeah. It's almost like having a, a personal nuclear reactor in your backpack. It's like insane levels of energy.
0: Yeah, I guess if they came to our solar system, we would know they were much more advanced than us. And therefore, but if we met in an equidistant place and they zoomed us back to their planet and it looked just like Earth, mm-hmm. we, would f- we wouldn't we would want to bring them back to our Earth if theirs was clean. But you're saying, and this is. Oh, a, is that what you're going with this? I think I think it'd be a shame to bring them home. Bring yeah back to our place because we haven't picked up for a while because our advancement our, cre- our the thing you know, our spaceship would look really sleek and cool they'd be yeah. by our rockets our suits would look pretty dope they'd be like you guys are great and then if we took them to our planet they go what, what happened and we got eh, a little carried away things got out of hand yeah. we, we just made a mess
1: i certainly think there are aspects of human history which don't really commend us very well as as a species and and there are people out there and i kind of come back to this who kind of see all the all the horrible things that humans are capable of doing to each other. And, and this is very easy to do because all you have to do is pull up a web browser and type in like the worst thing to happened today, otherwise known as like news.google.com yeah. or something. And if you're a sensitive, you know, nice person, you think, God, why are humans such dicks to everyone all the time, right? And it's very easy to become despondent and down about like the intrinsic goodness of a human race. But it's important to remember that actually most people are out there just trying to survive and trying to do a little bit of good here and there and help each other out. And if you have got friends who work in healthcare or whatever, you know, you kind of see most people are about helping other people. This and thing, this collectively, we're cap- we're capable of terrible evil. Mm-hmm. We're also capable of great positive actions as well. You know, and and uh, you know, like in the 20th century, many bad things happened, but also we eradicated diseases like smallpox, and that's that's a good thing. You've you know,
0: created two tracks so to speak on um, one the thing we started off and weirdly sort of chatting about weirdly thinking in the context of this conversation mm. uh the holocaust and things that w- you can look at it and say oh it was those bad guys doing bad things mm. when rea- realistically you'd go no it was bad people doing bad things and other people being kind of apathetic and allowing it if not yeah. sharing some of the sentiments That's and looking watch. the other way yeah. the other track is what else What else you talked about? Travelers. People say, come in here, eat some food. Hey, you look hungry. The yeah. kindness, the overall food, gentleness snacks, of the stay, human spirit.
1: Can you stay for a while? Yeah. Would you like to teach at my school? We stay for a year and teach at my school. Stuff like that. Um, that really one goes to Mars generous.
0: and does well. The other one... Pollutes the planet, destroys all the fish, and we die here in this disgusting swamp that we—it seems like we've created. Those Wallowing are to in be our the two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like the other one. I like the, the kind travelers that make their way to Mars and make Mars a second inhabitable place.
1: So one of the risks of the of the first point of view is it's fundamentally dehumanizing. And when we think of people using the word dehumanizing, we typically use it to attack people who we don't like. Um, you know, so so like one of the strategies of certain. Um, you know, political constituencies in this particular country is to dehumanise uh, migrants who are coming to the country in the hope that we think, oh, they're not really humans. We can therefore justify the way we want to treat them.
0: Right, it's an invasion
1: and keeping them out or something. They're as like I
0: mean, vermin. They're Little like subtle. they're like vermin. Exactly. Yeah,
1: it's like vermin. And 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 you know, this is not a new thing that someone just invented. Exactly the same right. um, propaganda and was, was has been levelled uh, throughout time against the outgroup, whoever the outgroup would uh, is, and there always has to be an outgroup if you're pursuing that kind of politics. It's important to realize that if you, if you watch movies like Indiana Jones that are like <laughs> vaguely historical, like based on, <laughs> based on historical memes, that the evil characters in those movies, in order for these to be acceptable daytime entertainment for families, are also dehumanized. And I'm not saying Nazis are all great guys or anything like that, but I'm saying the Nazis in Indiana Jones are portrayed as unthinking, mean, horrible aliens yeah. who it's entertaining to kill. Mm-hmm. You know, and don't get me wrong if I was alive in the 1940s and I was working on the Manhattan Project and I was going to go and nuke a bunch of Nazis which was a plan at one point but uh, I wouldn't feel too bad about it like you know certain things you know like <laughs> that's what nukes are for but, was, uh, but th- th- at the same time ties in. There was but at the same uh... time we have to remember that the Nazis came to power in Germany not because Germany was some backward hellhole that where people were ignorant at the time Germany was the most industrial like technologically advanced country on earth with some of the richest people on earth Right. And some of the highest levels of education, uh, overwhelmingly uh, religious Christian um, population, like not, not, not like like fire and brimstone Christian, but like, you know, the, the just routine, like run of the mill Christians, <laughs> like you know, like, Christmas and Easter Christians. Exactly. Exactly. All, all the same types. And yet and yet this is the lesson. Right. That it's it's, you know, like the banality of evil is that somehow the algorithm went wrong over there. And they were able to collectively execute this terrible evil. Yeah. The lesson is not, oh, well, I'm lucky I'm not a Nazi. You know, I'm lucky I'm not a German horrible person, whatever. Um, the, the lesson is that if it was that easy for them, it could easily happen other places. Yeah. We need to think very carefully about, you know, the way we portray fellow human beings mm-hmm. and understand that in all of us there's a capacity for good and for evil.
0: Yeah. Right? absolutely and there was a photo album that was recently I saw it on Twitter like that someone had had uh, just like an a basement yeah I saw that as well you saw that? yeah
1: yeah they found it in some Chicago basement and it was photos from the retreat from Auschwitz or something
0: and it just it looks very much like the Roaring 20s kind of uh, flapper scene almost you know yeah. guys and gals out having fun they're laughing and they're I, I see what you're saying when like in well, almost all of the people there and we
1: know there are some dissidents that, that kept their heads down but almost all the people involved in extermination camps and so on genuinely believed they were doing the right thing
0: there are you know? people currently in the United States I'm sure that when they heard about the detention centers drove down there to apply for a job it's not like it just oh I'm just some guy and this well, is my down new job Just there protest
1: outside I mean like both
0: sides for sure place, yeah. but we act as if like the apathy from doing something heinous comes from hey you, you know your job as a security guard every night well now a new aspect of it is you gotta look the other way when I bring this whatever it is in this is Ill- illegal thing and you go, Oh, okay. And then after the fact history or whoever looks at that security guard and how'd you let that happen? And there's some empathy for that person. i like, ah, they just, it got worse and worse over time. He didn't really realize. Well, it's, it, I mean, it happens to all of us. Um, do you have a,
1: do you have a road trip around here? Around L.A.? Well, like up to Mammoth or something like oh, that? Oh, sure, yeah. Okay, so I don't know where your listeners are collocated, but there's a, there's a fabulous road that runs from Los Angeles up towards, um, I've actually taken it as far as, as Nevada when I went to Burning Man a couple of times, um, and on the way it goes up the Owens Valley, 395, and just north of Lone Pine, which so is a that, small town.
0: That beer's from there.
1: Oh, great. Um, just north of Lone Pine, there's a, a memorial and a museum for Manzanar. Yeah, Manzanar. I went there for
0: Memorial Day right. uh, like two years ago.
1: Yeah, and actually the Santa Anita Raceway just down the road here, um, was like also an internment camp. There are a whole bunch of them all over the place, but Manzanar was the largest one. In Manzanar, in the 19, early 1940s, the United States government unconstitu- unconstitutionally interned 45,000 Japanese American citizens. They are American citizens, most of them. Some yeah. of whom had been born in Japan or their parents had been born in Japan. Um, because at the time we were at war with Japan and they was believed they could be sleeper cells or something. Um, you know, habeas corpus be, be damned. And one of the most enduring memories I have of visiting this place and looking around, there's not much left anymore, is this photograph of um, essentially a scene in which the the people who'd been interned, the prisoners, were being uh, briefed by employees at the camp about a bureaucratic process that had been instituted to provide a, a mechanism whereby people could be allowed to leave. And this was called like a, essentially a, an exam they could take to prove they were loyal to the United States. And as originally instituted, this exam had a particular question that was worded in such a way that a person, a Japanese American dual citizen who answered it correctly, that would then allow them to regain their freedom would be guilty of treason against the Japanese (laughs) uh, government, Mm -hmm. which meant that potentially their relatives who lived in Japan, if they were discovered could be, and they would be discovered because they'd be like publicly out of the camp, uh, could be, you know, harmed, prosecuted, um, disinherited, uh, whatever. So the thing there is the people who were administering the camp probably spoke Japanese by this point. They knew the people who lived there. They worked with them. It was kind of a collaborative, cooperative prison environment as far as it can go. You know, prison with children. Great. So they knew that this question was messed up, right? But somehow they weren't able to fix it, at least with the first round. So there they are briefing all these people saying, this is the questions. You have to answer them this way in order to get out, right? And the people listening are not very impressed by this. And the people giving the briefing are also not very impressed. And you can tell in this picture, no one is smiling right mm-hmm. so the people who are having their rights crushed are miserable and the people who are crushing the rights are also miserable because they are cogs in the machine like i yeah. mentioned before right they the the amount of individuality or, or creativity required to dis, to dispatch this particular element of governmental function in 1944 or whenever it was um is very very minimal essentially it's just your job is like a glorified mic- text-to-speech microphone And so the lesson for me there was that, you know, if you're in a situation and it sucks, it's probably because it sucks, you know, and, and if you have conscience, um, then, you know, and you're able to, maybe you should do something about it. And there's been a handful of occasions in my life where I've had the, the inclination and the bravery and the ability to stand up and be like, that's fucked up and not do it. And it's never been particularly pleasant or had a good outcome, um, for me personally, but you know. It, it pays to think carefully about how you feel about things like that before you're on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> before you find yourself like the lobster in the boiling pot of water, or everything, or the security guard has been t- told to look the <laughs> other way for their five bucks an yeah, hour. Yeah.
0: Right. Absolutely. Uh, uh,
1: career, you know, do, do you want to think about, we'll think about that before, uh, before you end up in that situation where you might have limited choices or, or really the ability to say so the inclination to, um, look the other way and, and just kind of put your head down and get on with life. Yeah. Sometimes there's no good answers. I can't, I can't say things for sure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've, um, do you have time for a little more bonus chatting?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I think I'm good for time. Um, we haven't really even talked about radiation yet.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's, um, brilliant dude. It's always, uh, exciting, a little intimidating, but overall, Insanely enjoyable to sit down and chat with someone whose mind is just so active and knowledgeable and filled with great tidbits and facts, and and then finding out a bit about his um, personal life as well as far as his history and traveling and things like that. It's always I just I really like that finding out just a little bit more about you know people can regurgitate facts like when you're in class or something and you're hearing a teacher go on and on. You're like oh, I get it, my professor, my teacher, whoever is intelligent. Um or you see people on TV, and they are there specifically to be an expert on a subject. But uh, I, I like behind the scenes, the finding out a little bit about them. That we're all just humans. We're all just crawling around here, trying to figure around. Well, maybe not crawling, but in the general sense, we as a species crawling all over this place, trying to figure out what we're doing here and why. And I just like chatting with people who know just a little bit extra, and in his case, a lot extra. And if you want to hear more of that chat, we get into radiation on Mars. I ask him some of the, the questions I normally ask the guests on this show. If you're familiar, if you've listened in the past, you know what those are. Uh, so if you're a, a Patreon subscriber, you can listen to that extended chat. I think it's like 35 or 40 minutes, so it's almost a full episode. And thanks to Casey for sticking around and doing that long of a conversation. I hope to get him back. And if you haven't checked out his blog, CaseyHandmer.com, you can follow him on Twitter at CJHandmer.com and uh, always posting links and interesting stuff so check it out caseyhanmer.com. very fascinating lot of content there all of it very uh, in depth and in, if you like the subject matter discussed on this show when i have scientists on i really think you'll like it again thank you to those of you who do support the show through patreon and uh, we mentioned last episode the GoFundMe me for dylan and his wife that link is still up if you follow the space cave space underscore cave on twitter good place to see it there you can email the show pings at the space cave.com if you have suggestions for guests or topics or beer or whatever else and uh check out one headed beast it's i don't know how much longer it'll be up but it took a lot of work and effort from a lot of really talented people. Jean Hospod, who listens to this show and is, uh, has become a good friend and supporter and very talented animator and artist. She was one of the people, a number of others, lots of really talented people from all over the world. And we're getting ready to shoot kind of a follow-up, a sequel, if you will. It'll be here in Los Angeles, most likely January 26th. I'll keep you posted on more of that, but I'd really love to have a crowd out for that, so I'll be bothering you soon with uh, pleas and things like that to get people out to that show, because I really need there to be a crowd, not just because it makes comedy better, but the thing we're shooting, it's hard to explain. But anyway, it's, it's dependent on there being like a full crowd. So, that sounds stupid, it'll make sense when you see the eventual product. Thanks to Dan for putting this show together down in Australia. Hopefully one day we'll get to meet. Perhaps if we get enough Patreon subscribers, we'll do that one day. And thanks to Rob Crow for the theme song. Hope you went and saw them at the Lodge Room with Pinback this Saturday. I'm assuming I went, and they are phenomenal, as always. Um, And speaking of music, this is a new EP you can find on Bandcamp if you search Hey Mike Henry. He was a writer for the sci-fi show I hosted called Reactor a few years ago. Really nice dude, very talented, great musician. Put together a little, I think it's five songs, EP called Panther in the Hay. I think it's great. I hope you like it too. Uh, Here's the title track from it. Panther in the Hay from Mike Henry. Thanks for stopping by the Space Kid.